0: 2 Samuel chapter 9, and this morning, title of today's message is a picture of God's saving grace, God's saving grace. It's here in this story that we see a marvelous portrait, a marvelous picture of the grace of God towards those who have received His gift of salvation. To just kind of set it up a little bit in context this morning, this is uh, kind of a story around King David, and to just put it kind of in the historical timeline of King David, King David is at the apex of his power, of his career, his authority. God has lifted him up from shepherding sheep, uh, from obscurity, and made him a shepherd of the entire nation. He's at his height as a successful ruler of, over this united nation. And the Bible says that uh, earlier, uh, over in chapter seven, uh, that he uh, that all of his in, that he had uh, the nation had rest from all of their enemies. So this is a very high point time in the nation of Israel. But in this interlude, uh, that uh, David uh, desired to build a temple from the Lord. You familiar with that? I'm sure to magnify God's name. He wanted a permanent. Structure that uh, would house the Ark of the Covenant. And of course, you know, God responded to David by telling him that uh, you cannot build me a house, but I will build you a house. Uh, I will build you a spiritual house. And so while David in this, uh, this timeline of 2 Samuel is at the pinnacle of his success, he conquered everything that could be conquered. He's kind of uh, had wealth and riches beyond his wildest dreams. He had set up and established a government of capable leaders and uh, people who were serving. Israel was running like a fine, well-oiled machine and prospering on every hand. And David, David's thoughts returned to his good friend Jonathan. And if you know that story of that relationship, Jonathan was the son of Saul. And his thoughts returned to Jonathan regarding a covenant, they made. And if you remember Jonathan, he's the son of King Saul, who was the first king of Israel, who uh, God allowed Israel to choose their own king, and he turned to be a failure and turned uh, to be an enemy of David, whom God had anointed at a young age of 15. It was probably give or take a few years and some change, about 20 years before David went from a young 15-year-old of shepherding sheep in his uh, Jesse's house to actually taking the United uh, Kingdom, the throne uh, in Jerusalem. But, he, but Jonathan and David made a covenant of friendship, of a relationship that was renewed uh, several times. Jonathan, uh, as you might remember, died in battle. And so uh, David, in this uh, text that we'll look at, his thoughts go back to this relationship and thinking about Jonathan but Malcolm Smith, by just way of, of, of kind of focusing on where we want to go, opens this chapter with a helpful uh, couple of statements that I'll just read. And it has to do with, uh, the basis has to do with the covenant of David and Jonathan, uh, his his friend, the son of Saul, who they were very close, but... Malcolm Smith says the making of the New Covenant, of course, we live under the New Covenant. We'll celebrate the New Covenant at the Lord's table. Uh, He says "The the making of the New Covenant is foreshadowed in many of the Old Testament stories. We must remember that they are records of actual events that took place in the lives of real people in Israel. They are helpful signposts that anticipate and point the way to what Jesus would do. They are not meant to explain his work of covenant making, nor do they fit every detail of what he did. But they help us to understand how the one act of Jesus 2,000 years ago transforms our lives today. One such story is found scattered throughout First and 2 Samuel. It is the story of a covenant that took place between Jonathan, the son of King Saul... And the crown prince of Israel, and David, who at the time was a general in Saul's army, and previously a peasant from Bethlehem. So it's in that context that we want to look at Second Samuel chapter nine and see it as a picture or a portrait of God's grace through this individual by the name of Mephibosheth. Uh, when we talk about God's grace. Uh, certainly people who have not experienced it, unbelievers in Christ, uh, they're strangers to grace. They're not, they, they still have maybe a concept that God is somebody we have to work and we have to perform and earn our acceptance to. And believers, uh, sadly, yours truly included, we often uh, forget the amazing grace that we sing about sometimes isn't amazing anymore. It's ho-hum, it's routine, and every once in a while we need to revisit and remind ourselves of the wonderful grace of God. St. Augustine has a quote that I always uh, find uh, meaningful when he says that the grace of God does not find men or women fit for salvation, but the grace of God makes them fit for salvation. And so, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we know well, uh, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the, what? It is the gift of God, something undeserved, not a result of works, so that no one may boast or brag. Notice with me about Mephibosheth, and there's some things that we'll a few scriptures will look at and then uh, zero in a little more as we move along. But just just kind of walk with me a little bit in this story of Mephibosheth as a story of God's saving grace. Notice first of all that Mephibosheth, the Bible tells us, was the enemy, the king's enemy. He was an enemy of the king. 2 Samuel 3, 1, which is not a part of where we'll spend time, but I just put it there for reference, reminds us of what life was like before David ascended to the throne, that there was a uh, somewhat of a, a civil war, not quite a civil war, but there was a contentious battle between God's anointed king, David, and Saul, who was still on the throne, the Bible says that there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. Uh, You had these two rivalries going on. God had blessed and was blessing David, and God's anointing was removed from King Saul. And Mephibosheth was the grandson of of King Saul. He was the son of Jonathan, so he was part of the house of who? Saul, okay? Saul is out of office and out of favor, and what is typical would happen is that when a king came to power, anybody associated, especially anybody in the family line that could one day be an inheritor or a rival to the throne, usually they were killed or exiled, And so we find that Mephibosheth, by virtue of who his grandfather was, whose family line he was a part of, he was an enemy of the king. David was not his enemy, but Mephibosheth was an enemy of the king because of his family line. And for us New Covenant believers, we immediately see that parallel of of our relationship apart from our relationship with Christ. God isn't man's enemy, but by nature, the Bible says that we are estranged, but it actually uses the term that we are enemies. We are in a hostile uh, separation from our Creator. Remind you of Romans chapter 8. The Bible says that the mind of sinful man, humankind, is death, but the mind, controlled by the Spirit, is life, and peace. The sinful man is what? Hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, and notice this, nor can it do so. It does not have the ability on its own to submit to the law of God. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, writing to believers, you, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature But by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, I believe, that I'm not sure if I put that on there, I may not, where it says, as for you, you were dead in transgressions and sins. That was the nature of your relationship before Christ. You were an enemy of the king. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. See, that is past tense for the believer. In which you used to live when you did what? When you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit, little s, who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So just as Mephibosheth, because of that estranged relationship, was outside of favor of the king's family, and was an enemy, so too the Bible says that apart from that right relationship with the king of kings, we are enemies of God. But notice secondly, not only was Mephibosheth the king's enemy, but secondly Mephibosheth, the Bible says, was lame because of a fall. 2 Samuel chapter 4 verse 4 tells us what happened that in the and I'll just set it up this way in the final days of when David's army and his power was uh, uh, was coming to power and there was uh, the family of Saul and the and the government and everybody associated with King Saul was fleeing getting out of town uh, that uh, there was a there was great haste and great fear because now the conquering army of David was ascending and the Bible says in verse 4 of 2 Samuel 4 that Jonathan, the son of Saul, that's Mephibosheth's daddy, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. And then explains what happened. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse, his nanny, the servant, took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. He was crippled in his feet, and his name was Mephibosheth. That's what happened. He was lame because of a fall. When news of King David uh, came to that household, there was great panic and she dropped him and now he was crippled or lame in both feet. As a parallel, looking at it through the lens of New Covenant, as a parallel by contrast, the Bible is very clear and consistent that the entire human race is not only an enemy to God apart from a relationship with Christ, but because of a fall of our own. The Bible refers to the sin of Adam and Eve that the Bible reiterates as a literal event. Jesus even identifies it as a real historical event. Uh, He identifies and and we refer to that as the fall of humanity. We fell from our right high relationship as image bearers, and now we fell because of the disobedience of our first family, our first parents and their disobedience. And so we are all, spiritually speaking, lame or crippled because of our own fall. Our fall affected three aspects of our humanity. It didn't go without consequence. Humanity is lame, crippled, morally, we are crippled, we are lame morally, we cannot be what we desire to be or even what God says we should be. Secondly, that humanity is lame physically. Sickness, death, pain, suffering, uh, all of these have come as a result of our own fall. And humanity is lame spiritually. We cannot make ourselves righteous. We cannot make ourselves holy. We cannot clean our dirty record before God. Scripture, again, is clear. It is consistent that we are all crippled because of our own fall. Everyone, without exception, faces the same eternal state, judgment, because of a fall Mephibosheth was physical, ours was spiritual. Romans 3.23 reminds us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Galatians 3.22 from the New Living Translation says, but the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. We are in bondage, we don't have freedom as we sung about There's a prison of fear, of guilt, that has been affected because of the fall. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin, the earning of sin, is not anything but death, but the gift of God is eternal life. The wages, the earnings of sin is death. And so, not only was Mephibosheth, like us, an enemy of the king, secondly, he was lame or crippled because of a fall, but thirdly, Mephibosheth, and I love this, and we get to chapter 9, Mephibosheth was sought by the king. He was sought out by the king. And let's pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. And David said, as he's in his palace and thinking about uh, things to do, it, I believe the Holy Spirit brings to his mind and reminds him, he says, is there anyone left? Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul? And notice his motive, that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake. Don't let that leave you. We're going to come back to that last statement there for Jonathan's sake in just a moment. Verse 2. Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. There's another good name for that twin. And they called him to David, Ziba, And the king said to Ziba, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. I imagine when he heard that there was still a son that belonged to Jonathan. I don't know. I just have this picture that uh, he was looking down and playing with his phone or whatever he was doing, uh, that all of a sudden his head jerked up and he looked up because he heard that name of his friend that he loved. He said, yes, there is still a son of Jonathan. And notice again, he is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, where is he? I mean, there's an immediate reaction and Zeba said to the king, he is in the house of Mekir, the son of Amiel, at Lodibar. Lodibar. What is Lodibar? Uh, we'll talk about Lodibar, but it's not a place you want to have a vacation. Mephibosheth, what I, what I want you to see here is that not only was, a, was he an enemy of the king, not only was he an enemy of the king, he had nothing to offer the king because Uh, He could not come out. He could not uh, make his way to Jerusalem to the king. He was crippled and lame because of a fall. Mephibosheth did not search for David, but but the king sought Mephibosheth. The king looked for David. The king took the initiative in finding Mephibosheth. Maybe Mephibosheth, part of what would make sense, especially being in the house of Saul was the fear and the, the, the afraid and maybe the wrong perception. Because if there was anybody that was a part of the house of Saul, it would make sense. They, they counseled uh, Mephibosheth that whatever you do, you don't want David to find you. You want to be as far away from that king. You want to avoid him because when he finds you, he's going to kill you. And there's some people like that. They just have such a misperception of the nature of God that they hide in fear. But the Bible's so clear that even as we try to hide from God, how many of you know you can never hide from God? God always knows where we're at. God will search you down. God will find you. God in his sovereign grace seeks us and finds us. John 3.16 reminds us that God takes the initiative. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Luke 19.10 reminds us that Jesus said, I have come, for what reason? To seek and to save that which was lost. Mephibosheth was certainly separated and lost, and David the king, just like our king of kings, seeks us and finds us. But the Bible says also in Romans 5.8 that God demonstrates his own love for us in this that while we were still sinners Christ died for us another observation here under this uh, under this uh, point here is that in this searching for David notice that David used others he used Zeba to help him find Mephibosheth he had uh, gave the order to Zeba to go and find Mephibosheth and you know God is not limited by circumstances, by obstacles in how he seeks after and finds uh, us and how he found us. If you've been a part of the Wednesday series with uh, Tony Evans and detours, you know that there's no obstacle or detour that can hinder God. God's uh, purposes will stand and whom God selects and chooses, he will bring to himself. God can, is not limited by circumstances or sufferings or people or family or anything, the Bible reminds us about this seeking God who seeks after his own. In John six forty four, 44, the, Jesus said himself in John six forty four, no one can. That speaks of ability. That goes back to our being crippled spiritually by the fall. We do not have the ability in and of ourselves. When Jesus reiterates that in verse 44, no one can, no one has the ability to come to me Unless what the Father who sent me draws him, I mean if you look at that word in the Greek, it isn 't a wooing it isn 't like trying to get a little deer to come and gently woo you. If you trace that word out you 'll find it's the same word used in Acts when it spoke of when they dragged the apostles into to uh, Jail and put them in prison. It's not a wooing; it's literally a dragging. If God had not taken this dead corpse, spiritually called Tim Campbell, and dragged me to Himself, I was crippled. I never would have made it on my own. Mephibosheth was physically lame. He did not have the ability. So too do we not have the ability. But I mentioned about Lodibar, maybe your next vacation spot. It says he was living in Lodibar, and Lodibar literally means a place of no bread. It's a desolate place. It's a dry place that nobody, even on the run, or if you're being hunted, nobody even wants to go there. Lodibar was a place of starvation, a place that means a place of no bread, And again, what a parallel, what a picture of our condition separated from the king. Are you with me? Uh, We're separated from the king. We are spiritually living in our own lodi bar, a place of no bread. There's no spiritual food in our condition apart from the king. There's no fulfillment apart from Christ. Hopelessness is on the menu day in and day out. I posted a little quote. I like good quotes from Greg Laurie. I love what he said, life with Jesus is endless hope, but life without Jesus is a hopeless end. You see, with Christ, we always have hope. And just as Mephibosheth would have died poor and hungry and separated from the king if if the king had not intervened, my friend, we would be Poor, hungry, dead, separated, however you want to put the picture around it. If our king, Jesus, had not sought us and come after us, we are in the same condition. Mephibosheth was the king's enemy. He was lame, crippled because of a fall. He was sought by the king. Fourthly, Mephibosheth was accepted by the king. Again, in 2 Samuel chapter 9, beginning at verse 5, Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Mekir, the son of Amiel, at Lodibar, brought Mephibosheth in. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. He doesn't know whether the king is going to kill him, cut his head off. He doesn't know what he's going to do because, again... Remember what his family line is. He's of the house of Saul. He has nothing in himself to earn or deserve any good grace from the king who's in power. But notice what it says. And David said, and again, you just I, I love to try to visualize this uh, or picture, the drama here. He's laying on his face, won't even look up. And David says, and it, Mephibosheth almost kind of yells his name. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, do not fear. Why do you think he says, do not fear? It's real deep because he was afraid. He said, do not fear, for I will do what? I will show you I will show you kindness because you're deserving. Because there's something worthy in you. I mean, in a human level, he really can't do much or anything for David. He can't be in his army, he can't wait on him, can't be a servant, he can't do any chore, nothing. Why? He's crippled, he's lame. But he said, I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And I love this. And you'll eat at my table always. I love the way that the Bible reminds us of how Mephibosheth was accepted by David. It's really a parallel to how we are accepted by God. Notice that Mephibosheth was accepted as is. As is. Some people think that I cannot come to God because I need to clean up my act first. You can't get that clean, friend. Look at verse 8. This shows you how Mephibosheth saw himself, the New Living Translation. I like how it words at verse 8. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed after David said that. He says, Who is your servant, who am I, that you should show such kindness to a what? A dead dog like me. You see, a sinner who is saved by the grace of God never comes parading and parading before God. They see themselves as unworthy dead before Almighty God. He's crippled. He's a dead dog in his own self-image. Secondly, it reminds us that he was accepted not only as is, but he was accepted in his helpless condition, just the way God accepts us in our helpless condition. He had nothing to offer. He didn't have any money. He didn't have any payment. There was no rationale, humanly speaking, for the king's kindness to Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was accepted by David, and to, be, to remind ourselves of the verse we read early in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 about grace, we have been saved through faith, and that's not of ourselves, but it is what? It is a gift of God. A gift of God. When you get a gift, you didn't earn it. It's a gift. It's a gift. And you receive it. And it says it's not by works. He was receiving the gift of the king as we receive it in our own helpless condition. But I love this. Not only was he accepted as is in his helpless condition, but he was accepted for another's sake. David loved Jonathan like a son because David and Jonathan had made covenant together. And you can read that some other time in 1 Samuel 20. And Malcolm Smith, again, I'm going to read this a little longer, but it's so helpful. It's worth worth the reading. Listen to what he says about the fact that not only was Mephibosheth received as is in his helpless condition but because of another's sake. Why did David show kindness? Not because there was anything inherent in Mephibosheth, but because of a relationship that Mephibosheth had really nothing to do with except by birth. Malcolm Smith says this, "'Taken before the king, Mephibosheth threw aside his crutches, fell on his face, and waited to hear the order for his execution. What he heard must have left him speechless.'" When David said, do not fear, I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Smith says this, he was not treated on the basis of his track record of loyalty to David, but on the basis of a covenant entered into before he was born, made by his father, "...who had stood as the covenant representative for his children's children. David delighted in him, delighted in Mephibosheth, as if he were Jonathan himself. He was accepted in the oath and yes of his father. The covenant made years before in the bloodshedding of Jonathan still held as fresh as the day it had been made." Although he was confronted personally with the covenant and its promises, there was no need of a further individual covenant between David and Mephibosheth. David accepted him solely on the basis of his having been in Jonathan at the making of the original covenant. And now, and now confronted with the gift of covenant. Mephibosheth had a decision to make. To accept the covenant, he had to enter into the pledge of allegiance Jonathan had made to David, which would separate him from all the other members of the family of Saul, to never share in the hatred they bore to David. To enter into the covenant would be a death to all that he had previously called life, its goals, hopes, ambitions, and all the friends who shared them with him, and to rise again from that death to being a prince in the royal house of David. Last statement. Lying on the floor before David, he accepted the yes of his father, swore allegiance to David, and allowed the covenant, listen to this, allowed the covenant to change his life forever. He was taken in to the king's house and treated as a prince, eating with David every day as a continual reminder of a covenant made before he even existed. Now, if you don't if you don't see that wonderful picture of God's redemptive covenant with us, I'll read it again. No, I won't do that. But I love that. And the last observation is that Mephibosheth lived with the king forever. To finish it out, 2 Samuel 9, 9 9-13. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all Look at the restoration. Not only is there relationship, redemption, but there's restoration. All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons, talking to Ziba, and you and your sons and your, and your servants, that's pretty high class operation if the servants got servants, right? They don't mess around there. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for who? For him, Mephibosheth. And shall bring him bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. His fortune just skyrocketed. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, says it I think seven times, shall always eat. Notice the security of that relationship, notice the security of our salvation, shall always eat at my table. He didn't do anything to get it, and he can't do anything to get out of it. He will always eat at the king's table. Now Zeba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And then Zeba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Mekah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. Do you think the writer's trying to remind us seven times that he always ate at the king's table? Do you see what a wonderful picture that is of redemption, restoration, estrangement? But now, because of an agreement made way before he even existed, on the basis of that covenantal agreement, Mephibosheth reaped the benefits. The Bible tells us that like Mephibosheth became a son to David, that's what happens to every child of God who receives the gift of salvation and becomes sons and daughters of the king. John 1.12 reminds us yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave, Christ gave the right to become the children of God. Sitting at the king's table, he didn't have any fear anymore. He belonged there. His needs were provided. He even got extras, produce from the field. He was getting all the extras. He had the king's protection. And besides all that, he was a part of the king's family. Titus 3, as I close, reminds us that at one time, at one time, we too were foolish disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in our own Lodi bar, I'll add that. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But notice this, but when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared. Go back to that. But when the kindness and love of our God, our Savior, appeared, we didn't have to stay in Lodi Bar any longer. Our fortune changed like that. We now could sit at the King's table forever. It says that He has saved us not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. I just always have this picture in my head of the king's table. You know, breakfast, lunch, dinner. I don't know if they had... Midday snacks. I don't know what the setup was. But I just always have this picture. Maybe David or somebody didn't acknowledge and lead in a prayer of thanksgiving. Until Mephibosheth, maybe the last one around the table, made his way to his space, to his spot. You see, that's the wonderful thing about the new covenant. We're not here by accident. We're not here by coincidence. Every seat, and it pictures that last supper when all, all of those chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, the Bible calls that the elect. The question isn't why God chose me. The question is why he chose anybody. When you understand our past relationship there was nothing in us. We were crippled because of a fall. We deserve nothing. But the wonderful picture is when Jesus is at that banqueting table that is so pictured so wonderfully in the book of Revelation, my friend, there will not be one empty chair around that table whose name was not predestined to be there. Now, that may blow your mind, but you just read your Bibles, and you just thank God. For his grace in your life. Don't be trying to worry about all the pieces that fit it together. I don't think Mephibosheth sat and pondered too much about how he got there. I think as he was eating all that whatever that great food they were chowing down on. I think he thought man it's great to be at the king's table. When you gather to worship among God's people. You should have a sense of how wonderful this amazing grace is. That by his mercy and grace. I'm seated at the king's table forever.